My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a PhD holding historian, a professor, and the creator of History That Doesn't Suck, a podcast that makes legit, seriously researched American history come to life through entertaining stories. Join me for a chronological telling of the United States story, from the revolution to fractious civil war, tenacious inventors, brave reformers, and more. With more than 100 episodes, you can already binge listen your way from 1776 to the early 20th century. Listen to History That Doesn't Suck on Spotify. Back in the 1800s, there lived a Native American man named Swift Runner, who was part of the Cree tribe of Western Canada. He spent much of his life working as a fur trapper and hunter throughout the country north of Fort Edmonton. He also worked occasionally as a guide for the Royal Canadian Mounted Police. For the most part, Swift Runner was well-liked throughout the community. At least that's the way things were for a little while. But over time, problems began as Swift Runner developed a taste for whiskey. That's because he was an angry drunk on top of that. Swift Runner was a big man, standing over six feet tall and weighing more than 200 pounds. And when he got drunk, he liked to fight. His behavior grew so out of control that the police department was forced to fire him. Soon after that, his own tribe decided they'd had enough and kicked him out as well. This caused Swift Runner to uproot his entire family, his wife, six children, his mother-in-law, and brother, and take them to live with him out in the forest during the early winter of 1878. No one heard from the man for several months after that. The following spring, everyone was surprised to see Swift Runner come stumbling out of the forest all alone. He made his way to a Catholic mission in St. Albert, where he told the priests that his entire family was dead. The man gave a vague, rambling explanation that his family had starved to death over the winter, and that he had been the only one to make it out alive. But there were some things about Swift Runner's story that just didn't add up, and some odd things people noticed about his behavior over the next few days that raised even more suspicions. For one thing, if Swift Runner's entire family had starved to death, why did he still look so healthy and strong? Then, each night as the man slept, Swift Runner managed to scare the hell out of everyone as he woke up screaming with night terrors. People began to whisper to one another that they didn't like the way he made them feel when he stared at them. It was as if he were sizing them up somehow. Then, one day Swift Runner tried to lead a group of children with him out into the woods. The priest stepped in and put a stop to this. This was the final straw. They contacted the authorities and a group of police officers were sent to investigate further. The police ordered Swift Runner to lead them back to his winter camp. There, the officers discovered a grisly scene. They found a small grave that Swift Runner claimed contained the remains of one of his boys. The men dug up the grave and saw that it did indeed contain the bones of a child. But this seemed a little odd to them as well because it was just the bones. No flesh remained on them, which, the men agreed, seemed a little premature for such a recent death, especially for a body that should have been preserved by the cold weather. As the officers continued to look around, they began to develop a much darker picture of what had really happened. 
There were more bones scattered around. Lots of them. And these bones told an entirely different story than what Swift Runner had described. The police inspector in charge showed Swift Runner a skull that he reluctantly admitted belonged to his wife. Many of the larger bones were snapped in two and bore teeth marks, the clear result of someone attempting to suck the marrow out of them. As the police searched further, they also found a cooking pot with the remnants of human fat inside. By now, it was obvious to everyone what Swift Runner had done. The man had killed and eaten his entire family. But when they questioned Swift Runner further why he had committed such a heinous act, his answer surprised them all. Swift Runner told them it was because he was no longer fully human. He said he was possessed by a creature of native folklore, a horrific beast that has captured imaginations all the way up to the modern day, a creature that is known by dozens of names throughout native tribes, a creature most of us know best today as the Wendigo. I'm Nate Hale, taking you on a one-way trip to Flavortown, and this is The Conspirators. One common legend you can find rooted in many native stories all throughout North America is that of the shapeshifter. The Navajo tell legends of the skinwalker, a fearsome witch who transforms himself into a monstrous animal, such as a bear or a coyote, by wearing an animal skin. The neighboring Hopi tribes take a kinder, gentler view by seeing humans and animals as one, allowing them to transform back and forth across species freely. The Hopi see shapeshifting as a manifestation of the close bond they have between the earth and the native gods. In general, many cultural historians will lump a lot of these native myths of shapeshifters together under the all-encompassing title of tricksters. The Tlingit tribes of the American Northwest believe the world was created by a trickster simply known as the Raven. According to the Tlingit, the Raven provided the earth for humanity to live on and then added the moon and stars for good measure. But like a lot of other tricksters, the raven didn't do this for any altruistic reasons. He did it out of sheer boredom. But, like the skinwalker legends that emerged from the American Southwest, there is another story of a trickster creature that is the stuff of nightmares. Throughout the northeastern seaboard and continental interior, there lives a diverse collection of native cultures and tribal nations that often get grouped together because they all share a common Algonquian dialect. Something else many of these Algonquian-speaking tribes share is the story of the Wendigo, a terrifying creature that stalks the forest. Legends say the Wendigo inhabits a wide territory spreading all the way across the northern woods of Minnesota, from the Great Lakes region all the way into the central regions of Canada. Dozens of different indigenous tribes, including the Ojibwe, the Cree, the Salto, and the Innu peoples, all have variations on this legend, and just as many names. Throughout the different Algonquian-speaking tribes, there are at least three dozen different words for the Wendigo, and most of those begin with the letter W, but we'll just refer to it as the Wendigo for simplicity's sake. 
Descriptions of the Wendigo can be a little difficult to pin down, mostly because of how widely varied these stories can be throughout different tribes. Most stories agree that the Wendigo is a horrifying creature with a taste for human flesh, and that anyone who encounters the Wendigo will likely either end up getting eaten or transformed into one of them. Many stories describe the Wendigo as a physical creature, while others say it's more of an evil spirit that inhabits the body of a human being and forces them to do terrible things, including cannibalistic murder. In fact, this was the defense Swiftrunner presented for himself. Swiftrunner claimed the spirit of a Wendigo appeared to him during the winter, and that it began telling him he needed to kill and eat his family. He told the authorities that he tried resisting, but the creature's influence was too strong. Eventually, it seized control of him and forced him to slaughter them all. But the judge and jury weren't impressed with Swiftrunner's claims of spiritual possession. Nor did they accept the idea he was starving, either, and only turned to cannibalism for basic survival. Prosecutors pointed out that there were emergency food supplies to be had just 25 miles away at a Hudson's Bay Company post. The jury only deliberated for 20 minutes before sentencing Swift Runner to hang. More than 60 people turned out to witness his execution at Fort Saskatchewan. One witness was quoted as saying, Boys, that was the prettiest hanging I ever seen. Since most native legends were passed around via their oral traditions, it's easy to see why there are such wide variations in the Wendigo legend. The stories of the Wendigo are so popular they have even creeped their way into modern pop culture depictions. You can see versions of the Wendigo in movies and books like Stephen King's Pet Cemetery, popular television shows such as Supernatural and Hannibal, and even in Marvel comics and children's cartoons like My Little Pony. Although most modern depictions of the creature tend to describe it as a hideous creature with stag horns protruding from its head, no such description exists in the original Algonquian-speaking people's legends. It appears the staghorn virgin is something that modern horror illustrators dreamed up that was later picked up by Hollywood. According to most of the original legends from the Algonquian-speaking tribes, the Wendigo is often described as a giant as big as 15 feet tall. Basil H. Johnston, an Ojibwe teacher and scholar from Ontario, describes it as such in his book The Manitous. The Wendigo was gaunt to the point of emaciation, its desiccated skin pulled tightly over its bones. With its bones pushing out against its skin, its complexion the ash gray of death, and its eyes pushed back deep into their sockets. The Wendigo looked like a gaunt skeleton, recently disinterred from the grave. What lips it had were tattered and bloody, unclean and suffering from the separation of the flesh. The Wendigo gave off a strange and eerie odor of decay and decomposition, of death and corruption. Once someone becomes a Wendigo, they lose all gender as well. Wendigos possess supernatural speed and can leap from treetop to treetop. They will stealthily stalk their victims for long periods. They also have heightened senses which helps them detect their prey from great distances, and which also helps make them such excellent hunters. If a person was ever to be so unfortunate as to be stalked by a Wendigo, they were as good as dead, but not right away. Wendigos like to toy with their victims as well. They have a blood-curdling shriek, and sometimes they will mimic human voices calling for help as well. 
A Wendigo may not necessarily lose the human's powers of speech or cognition either, and may be able to communicate clearly with its victims. One story told by Lottie Marsden of the Chippewas of Rama First Nation describes one particularly gruesome encounter with such a Wendigo. In the story, a Wendigo kidnapped a little boy but didn't eat him right away because the boy was too thin. He kept the boy with him as he traveled around in an attempt to fatten him up. But all that traveling didn't do the boy any good and he just grew thinner and thinner. Finally, the Wendigo sent the boy to a village to look for something to eat. This wasn't exactly a particularly smart move in the Wendigo's part because the boy took this opportunity to seek help from the villagers. The boy told his story to some of the village elders and showed them a cut in his hand the Wendigo had made to test if he was plump enough. Then they all heard the creature's ghostly voice carrying from the distance ordering the boy to hurry up. He was hungry. Very hungry. A hunting party formed and headed out to the woods to kill the Wendigo. First, they cut off his legs, thinking that would be enough to kill him. But instead, when they went back to check on the creature's body later, they were shocked to discover he was still very much alive, and was instead feasting on the marrow from inside the bones of his own legs. After that, the men decided they weren't taking any more chances, so they chopped the rest of the Wendigo up into a bunch of tiny pieces and scattered them far apart. Most legends describe several different ways a person can become a Wendigo. The most direct method begins with consuming human flesh, but apparently just dreaming about becoming a Wendigo can do the trick as well. It's said that some people can become a Wendigo without going through the full transformation as well, especially if the person is caught in some sort of inner turmoil. This sort of spiritual imbalance occurs when greed sets into the individual's heart and they choose to emphasize their own needs over the needs of the collective. According to most legends, there aren't many ways to kill a Wendigo either. Some Cree folklore claims you may be able to cure a person of being a Wendigo by forcing them to ingest some fatty animal meats, or drinking animal grease, which will cause them to vomit out the ice in their hearts. But most legends agree the only way to really be certain you have gotten rid of a Wendigo is to kill it which is easier said than done. As I mentioned before, you can't just cut off some limbs and hope for the creature to die. You also can't just shoot it with a normal gun either because most Wendigos regenerate. One effective method you'll sometimes hear is to use silver bullets or a silver dagger, striking right through the creature's ice-cold heart. But any fan of modern horror movies will tell you, even if you manage to strike the monster down, you still need to make sure it doesn't get back up again. To be absolutely certain, you have to cut out the Wendigo's heart and shatter it into pieces. Then lock the shattered heart in a silver box and bury it in sacred ground. Then, after all that, if you want to be really good and certain you've done the deed, you then need to dismember the creature's remains with a silver-plated axe. Then salt and burn the body. And scatter the ashes. In other words, killing a window is a lot of work. So if you really want to get the job done right, you need to employ the services of a professional. And as it turns out, there are certain people throughout history who have claimed to be professional Wendigo hunters. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow 
and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. There's a part of the western corner of Ontario in the Sandy Lake First Nation that is so remote it wasn't until the early 20th century when the first Westerners ever made their way there. There used to be a few trading outposts up around the region, but by the late 1800s, the Hudson Bay Company had shut them all down because of just how far removed from civilization the area is. All of which is to say that by the early 20th century, most of the indigenous tribesmen had never seen a white person before the two Canadian Mounties showed up in their village in 1907. The officers were there to arrest a pair of brothers, Jack and John Fiddler, for murder. Both men were in their 80s by then and both men claimed to have spent much of their lives hunting and killing Wendigos. Jack Fiddler was born sometime in the 1830s or 40s. No one knows the exact date. He was a Cree Indian, and he worked sometimes as a trader. He often traveled between the trading posts carrying fur and other goods. He was also the son of the Sandy Lakes People's Shaman, and that man taught Jack a lot about tribal folk magic, and in particular, how to identify and kill a Wendigo. When Jack's father died in 1891, Jack inherited the title of the leader of the Sandy Lake tribe. It wasn't a big tribe, maybe around 120 people. But Jack still had a major influence throughout the area, since he had become the official tribal shaman. As a shaman, Jack was the tribe's official healer and protector. If you or your loved one fell ill, Jack would whip up a potion or cast a spell to cure what ails you. And if one of your loved ones was in danger of becoming a Wendigo, Jack had a cure for that as well. A very final cure. When the Mounties showed up to arrest Jack, he told them the woman he murdered had been possessed by the spirit of a Wendigo and would have soon eaten his entire family if he and his brother hadn't put a stop to it first. Jack claimed to have defeated 14 Wendigos throughout his life. Jack was firmly in the camp of believing the Wendigo existed as an evil spirit, not some flesh-and-blood creature. At least it wasn't flesh-and-blood until it worked its way into a host body. That was when the creature became truly deadly. And since the Wendigo's spirit could hop from body to body, it was Jack's job to cut the infection off before it could spread too far throughout the tribe. In many cases, Jack told the authorities that these Wendigos were sent after his tribe by enemy shamans. Others were members of his own tribe who had been affected by the Wendigo spirit. In some cases, Jack was asked by the victim's family to euthanize the family member before they fully became a Wendigo. Such was the case of the woman Jack and his brother were accused of murdering. She also just so happened to be his daughter-in-law. Jack's daughter-in-law had been brought to him because she had fallen very sick. The woman was in severe pain that caused her to cry out in the night. Jack gave her a thorough examination and determined her pain was caused by a Wendigo that was slowly working its way into her heart. To which he knew the only cure for her was death. So Jack and his brother Joseph knotted a thin rope around the woman's throat and slowly choked the life out of her. Jack Fiddler managed to escape police custody and commit suicide before being put on trial. But Jack's brother was tried and convicted by a jury although he died of tuberculosis in jail before he could be executed. Incidentally, this was also something of a landmark case because it was one of the first occasions where Canadian law 
was shown in court to supersede tribal law. To members of Jack's own tribe, the man had done nothing wrong. Killing the woman had been a mercy and completely necessary in order to protect everyone from evil. Looking back, you can see where a lot of the Wendigo legends stem from. One thing all the different Algonquian-speaking tribes have in common is that they tend to live in areas that get hit by long, harsh winters, where food can be scarce. This naturally causes each tribe to need to stick together and share common resources for basic survival. Thus, if one person instead chooses to be selfish and separates themselves from the collective by focusing on their own needs over others, they may become a Wendigo. Some historians also point to the fact that a lot of Wendigo legends didn't even really come into being till after Europeans started showing up in North America. Which would seem to indicate that these Wendigo stories were actually a direct response to European colonialism as well, as the sort of terrible greed and capitalism the natives saw as a threat to their way of lives. As Europeans began settling into the New World, they also began trading not just goods with the indigenous peoples, but swapping monster stories as well. When some European fur trappers began hearing stories of the Wendigo, it naturally began to mesh up with myths of their own of another cannibalistic creature they were more familiar with, the werewolf. Something else interesting to note about the Wendigo legend is even though the staghorn beast Hollywood often depicts never appears in the original indigenous legends, there is another animal the native tribes do associate with the Wendigo, the owl. In fact, the word Wendigo can actually translate as both cannibal and owl. Which makes a degree of sense when you think about it considering owls are known to eat flesh as well. But if by now you're convinced the Wendigo is nothing but a myth, keep in mind these creatures were a very real concern, not only to native tribes who used the legend as a cautionary tale to focus on the collective, but also to European explorers who saw the Wendigo as a very real danger. As early as 1661, Europeans were writing about their encounters with the Wendigo. A story published by a Jesuit missionary describes their attempt to hire a group of native guides that was cut short when the men they were intending to hire all became seized by a strange ailment that caused them to act like wild beasts, crave human flesh, and attack their fellow tribesmen. The only cure the tribe had was to execute the men. By the 1920s, an actual mental health diagnosis called Wendigo psychosis had made its way into the psychiatric journals. This condition was typified by excessive greed and cannibalistic behavior. Although by the 1970s and 80s, that diagnosis was being widely rejected in the psychiatric community, because officially no such individual had ever been studied. Throughout history, there have been numerous cases where people have been driven to commit acts of cannibalism after being caught in harsh conditions with no other food source. I've talked about some of them on this podcast. There's the tale of the ill-fated Donner Party who are forced to turn to cannibalism after being snowbound in the Sierra Nevada mountains. Likewise, evidence shows that colonists in Jamestown in 1609 also turned to cannibalism to survive a particularly brutal winter. As recently as December 2012, there was a story that emerged in Siberia where four men got trapped in the frozen tundra. Only two of them came back alive. The four men set out on a fishing expedition the previous August only to become trapped under hellish frozen conditions. A bloody stake and axe police found on the scene provided evidence that the two survivors murdered at least one of their two compatriots in order to cannibalize him. Not all stories of cannibalism can be attributed to desperate acts of survival. 
There are some stories where it appears other forces are at work. Stories where one human decides to murder and eat someone else to fulfill some need that's much harder to explain. Stories like these often get mentioned along with stories of the Wendigo. Of course, most modern explanations for such grisly acts will rightly attribute such incidents to mental illness. But, then again, perhaps there really is a little Wendigo in all of us. Few such stories compare to that of what happened on July 30th, 2008, when two strangers boarded a bus in Manitoba, Canada. That night, a man named Tim McLean was returning home to Winnipeg after working his job as a carnival marker at a fair in Edmonton. McLean boarded a Greyhound bus and took a seat toward the rear. At 6.55 p.m., the bus stopped and picked up a new passenger, a tall man in his 40s with a shaved head and wearing sunglasses. This man was Vincent Weigung Lee. At first, Lee sat toward the front of the bus, but he moved toward the back to sit near McLean following a scheduled rest stop. Tim McLean barely noticed the other man who sat down next to him before he put on his headphones, leaned against the window, and drifted to sleep. According to witnesses, it wasn't long after that when Vincent Lee produced a large knife and began stabbing Tim McLean in the chest and neck. Terrified passengers began screaming to stop the bus. The bus driver abruptly pulled the bus over to the side of the road. Several passengers got up and rushed to escape. The bus driver and two other men remained behind and attempted to save Tim McLean, but Vincent Lee chased them off after slashing at them with the knife. Once everyone was outside standing alongside of the road, all anyone could do was watch in horror from outside the bus as Lee proceeded to decapitate Tim McLean. Lee carried the man's head around and showed it to passengers through the window. After that, he returned to Tim McLean's body and began severing pieces of flesh, some of which he ate. At 8.30 p.m., the Royal Canadian Mounted Police in Portage, La Prairie, received a report of a stabbing aboard a Greyhound bus outside the city. They rushed to the scene and found the suspect still on board. Although the passengers and bus driver had been unable to save Tim McLean, they had successfully trapped Lee inside the bus, preventing him from escaping. Before fleeing the bus, the driver had the good sense to engage an emergency system that prevented anyone from driving the bus away. By 9 p.m., police were in a standoff with Lee, who continued to pace frantically through the bus, occasionally returning to McLean's body and defiling it further. At approximately 1.30 a.m., Lee attempted to escape by breaking a window. Tactical officers shot Lee with a taser to incapacitate him. He was handcuffed and arrested. Police found the victim's ear, nose, and tongue in Lee's pockets. Tim McLean's eyes and part of his heart were never recovered and were presumed to have been eaten by Lee. Vincent Lee was put on trial on March 3, 2009. His attorney pleaded not criminally responsible due to a mental disorder. A psychiatrist who examined Lee told the court the man was suffering from schizophrenia, and he heard what he believed was the voice of God telling him to destroy the demon sitting beside him. The presiding judge accepted the diagnosis and remanded Lee to a mental hospital, where he remained until 2011, after which time he was diagnosed as recovering from his illness and over time was granted further freedoms. In February 2017, Vincent Lee was granted an absolute discharge and was set free. He has since changed his name and, according to reports, is living somewhere in Canada.
The Conspirators is written and produced by me, Nate Hale, an entirely fictional identity. Thanks so much for listening. I have some new Patreon supporters to thank. Thank you to Stephanie, Brianna, Jason, Carlos, and Nicholas. You're all incredible. Just a reminder, the patrons of the show get access to all sorts of nifty bonuses, including stickers, magnets, t-shirts, and our ever-growing library of exclusive bonus mini-episodes. If you're interested in becoming a patron, I'll put a link in the show notes. Another great way you can help support the show that won't cost a dime is to find us on Apple Podcasts and subscribe, rate, and give us a five-star review. Each one of your ratings and reviews helps boost us in Apple's charts and spreads the good word to more people. If you're not an Apple user, not to worry, you can also find us on Stitcher, Spotify, and pretty much everywhere else you get your podcasts. We also have a website, theconspiratorspodcast.com, where you can listen to our entire back catalog of shows. I also encourage you to follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and our Facebook page. You can also send us an old-fashioned email at theconspiratorspodcast at gmail.com. I'd love to hear from you. Thanks again for listening, and I hope you'll be back next time. Lastly, before we go, I want to tell you about another podcast you might be interested in. Considering you're listening to me right now, I'm sure you're just as interested in all things weird and creepy. Well, have you ever wanted to hear the story behind some of the most compelling hauntings in history? From Amityville to The Conjuring, the Grave Talks podcast takes you there. Three times a week, Tony Bruschi, host of The Grave Talks, talks to the people who experience shocking paranormal phenomena firsthand. He dives into how the experience affected those who survived it, and how it made them who they are today. What really happened to the Perrin family inside their haunted farmhouse? What was it like investigating side-by-side with the Ed and Lorraine Warren as they stepped foot inside the infamous Amityville house? Here are supernatural stories you will not find anywhere else than Grave Talks. Search the Grave Talks wherever you download your podcasts and press subscribe. Then start binging away on the ghost stories no one ever thought would be told. That is the Grave Talks. Search for it wherever you download podcasts and press subscribe today.